You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For May 31st, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. If there's one thing that should be clear from our explorations of energy transition in various countries, it's that they all have distinct sets of resources and challenges which will make their energy transition pathways unique. So far, we have covered the U.S., Germany, the U.K., India, China, African countries, the developing world, Denmark, Netherlands, the North Sea countries, Latin American countries, especially Chile and Mexico, and Australia. Some are aiming for big, expensive, ambitious, multinational grids and markets. Others are finding that small, off-grid, standalone, and networked grids work best for them. Some are moving quickly and others slowly. Some will rely mainly on solar, others on wind. Still others might find their best transition days are still ahead and will rely on newer technologies like geothermal and marine energy. Even a casual observer might look at these differences and conclude that there's no such thing as a single speed for energy transition, and they'd be right. But some well-respected energy analysts still insist that history proves energy transitions are slow, protracted affairs, while others point to how different the historical examples are from place to place. And then there are questions about what exactly we even mean when we're talking about transition. Is it switching from one fuel to another, or from one kind of energy-consuming machine to another? Or does it merely mean changing the way that we do things, apart from the fuels and the machines that consume them, like switching from cars to trains, for example? Or is it all of the above? One analyst who has explored this question in some detail is our guest today. Dr. Benjamin K. Sovacool, Professor of Energy Policy at the University of Sussex in the United Kingdom, who is also the Director of the Sussex Energy Group and Director of the Center on Innovation and Energy Demand, which also involves the University of Oxford and the University of Manchester. The author of more than 380 peer-reviewed publications and the author or contributor of 18 books on energy and climate change topics, Dr. Sovacool works as a researcher and consultant on issues pertaining to energy policy, energy security, climate change mitigation, and climate change adaptation with a focus on renewable energy and energy efficiency, the politics of large-scale energy infrastructure, designing public policy to improve energy security and access to electricity, and building adaptive capacity to the consequences of climate change. He's a distinguished professor, a frequent peer reviewer and journal editor, and an expert on just about everything you can think of in energy transition, and it's a privilege to have him on the show. In addition to discussing the speed and nature of energy transitions, we'll talk about his research on the pathways by which European countries plan to decarbonize their economies under the Paris Climate Accord. We'll discuss in depth how the Nordic countries of Denmark, Finland, Sweden, Norway, and Iceland are going about their transitions, his outlook for CCS technology and nuclear power, 
the potentials and pitfalls of nuclear power and the potential for distributed energy resources to replace nuclear. And we'll wrap it up with the first ever Energy Transition Show Lightning Round, in which he'll answer 15 questions about energy transition in under two minutes. And then in the news segment, we'll talk about an ironic failure at the Svalbard Seed Vault in Norway, a fascinating new renewable energy experiment in Iceland, a very narrow D.C. District Court ruling on PURPA, and a new geoengineering experiment in Arizona. But first, our chat with Dr. Benjamin Sovacool. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Benjamin, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You've published hundreds of articles and co-authored or contributed to 18 books on energy and climate change, so there's really no end of the things that we could talk about on this podcast. So I think I'd like to start with the big picture and talk about energy transition itself, and then we can focus in on some of the specific subjects. Sounds good? That sounds great. Okay, so in the journal you edit on energy transitions, which is called Energy Research and Social Science, you published a series of articles last year which amount to a debate about the speed of energy transition. Some of the contributors in that debate included names that will probably be familiar to this audience, such as Václav Smil and Arnulf Grubler. And I thought this was quite interesting because I wrote a piece four years ago for Green Tech Media in which I argued that Smill's insistence on energy transitions being these slow, protracted affairs really seemed too rooted in the past and that he was overlooking or ignoring some very compelling contemporary evidence that energy transition is actually moving a whole lot faster than he said was possible. So why don't you summarize for us what the contributors to your journal had to say on that matter? Well, thanks. Well, it's good to know, I guess, some people read academic articles these days. <laughs> That's all we do here. <laughs> so the background behind that debate is a bit of a long story, which I'll make mercifully short. We had a special issue in the journal, one of our first energy transitions in Europe. And as part of that special issue, we had a call for papers, and we got in about 50 or 60 abstracts, of which in the end, I think about 30 articles were submitted, and a handful less, maybe 20 or so, made it to publication. And that special issue was quite nice because it really did present a really comprehensive interdisciplinary overview of everything you could think of with transition. So case studies, different scales, different types and formats and typologies. So the first section was kind of dealing with transitions at the community or local scale. Then there was another section dealing with transitions at the national or regional scale. And then the final part was more theoretical. And this was the part where people were asking questions like, what theories best explain transitions? We had a nice contribution from Philip Andrew Speed on institutional theory and dynamics of transitions. And then my piece, which almost, I think, came last, because they didn't know where to put it. And that piece started with a simple question, and unfortunately got us a very complicated answer. And that question was, how long does an energy transition take? <laughs> and this paper was a bit unusual in that it didn't really have a research method. I didn't go around and interview people. There was no survey. There was no scenario or no model. I simply kind of sat at my desk, as us scholars sometimes do, and I read as much as I could in about six months. So I think the paper has almost 200 references. And basically, I found that, interestingly, the academic community is kind of split on the topic. There are those like Grubler and Smill and Fouquet and others who do look to history and say they always take a long time. All of the past major energy transitions or transformations have taken decades to centuries, whether it's the phase out of original renewables like hydro and biomass and wood to things like coal, or then the phase in of things like oil and electricity. We're talking 100 plus years in many parts of the world as these new technologies became adopted. Or to use Grubler's terminology, they moved from the core to the periphery. The other half, though, 
were people that were kind of excited, some new historians and kind of advocates like Al Gore, who said the opposite and said, bollocks, no, the past transitions may have been passed because they weren't planned. But future transitions, whenever humanity has collectively decided to do something, whether it's respond to world war or abolish slavery or give women rights, then they tend to do them fairly quickly. And going forward, Al Gore even famously thought that the U.S. could transition completely to renewable electricity in the span of 10 years. Much to the annoyance of Smill. Yes, much to the annoyance of Smill. And there I wanted to flesh out that kind of optimistic thinking a bit more. And so I basically cherry-picked 10 case studies where there aren't representative cases. They're more, I guess, illustrative cases or extreme cases, where I did find 10 examples of where you see fairly rapid transitions. And I chose five in national supply and five in end-use devices. And so it's things like the transition to nuclear power in France or the transition to oil in Kuwait or the adoption of air conditioners in the United States or improved cookstoves in China. Hmm. And if you add those 10 transitions up, all of them took less than 16 years, and they collectively impacted almost a billion people. So there is some room for optimism. Another finding, though, from that original article was though there is incredible disagreement, not only on the timing of transitions, but also on the definition of transitions. And here, I think, lies the rub, because what one person sees as maybe an energy transition, another person might see as an electricity transition or a transport transition. Right. And still someone else might see it as a bundle of discrete transitions that actually occur in subsystems. So the big rise of oil at the turn of the 20th century may look like the rise of oil right, to someone like BP, but you can actually disaggregate it into eight or nine simultaneous transitions, the phase out of whale oil, the phase mm -hmm. in of oil furnaces, the phase in of internal combustion engines for cars, right, right? the phase in of steam turbines, the invention and kind of perfection of pipelines, the refinement of how we actually refine and improve unleaded gasoline, all of this fits into that transition. And I think that is one of the elemental things we concluded is that what a transition is, how you define it, where you pick the starting point, there is no right or wrong answer. And all of the fast examples that I gave, you can make a case that they actually went back even further than my start point. For instance, the nuclear revolution in France, I think we chose the 1972 Mesmer plan as the benchmark because that's when France decided, okay, we're doubling down on nuclear and they announced a very ambitious proposal. But really, that transition could also be said to have started in maybe the 40s with the creation of the CEA after the end of World War II or the beginning of the Manhattan Project, or even further with the first kind of experimental physics thoughts of people like Fermi and others who were talking about radioisotopes. So it's kind of a, where does it start? You know, you end up tracing the intellectual idea and it does probably go back hundreds right. of years rather than right. a few decades. There's no simple answer. There's no straightforward or well understood or widely recognized definition of what an energy transition is. And so there can be no single answer to whether transitions are slow or fast. Unfortunately, I yeah. still think that there's room for optimism. And the piece that I wrote on temporal dynamics did provoke a debate that had these six contributions from people like Grubler and Smill and others. And interestingly, even there, the responses were split. There were kind of three that were critical of fast transitions and then three that weren't. In fact, one of them from a businessman, Peter Sir Bromley, even argued that I'm too slow <laughs> in mm -hmm. my projections and that we could actually accelerate innovations even faster than I thought possible, given the accumulation of innovations. 
Well, I'm certainly bullish on the speed of transition going forward from here. In fact, I think just the last 10 years alone have really shown the world that this transition is moving a lot faster than anyone expected. So speaking of the speed of energy transitions, way back in your graduate student days at Virginia Tech, you analyzed the barriers to small-scale renewable electricity sources and distributed generation in the United States. And now, many years later, we have a new reality in which resources like rooftop solar and distributed storage and demand response are finally becoming significant and fast-growing contributors to an emerging new kind of grid. So can you share a bit of your personal perspective on that evolution and how things have changed over the years and whether there were any aspects of that evolution that have been surprising to you? Yeah, I mean, the United States is a bit of a quirky example because, I mean, first of all, such a, a big unit of analysis. I mean, it's probably more effective to talk about 50 independent states with all of their own energy policies and planning mechanisms. And, yeah, and you have enough. some, like California or Vermont, that are very progressive. And you have others, like the South, <laughs> Alabama, Tennessee, that aren't so progressive. And so in that regard, I think, you know, the first thing to kind of remark is there is a political economy of energy planning and policy. And you see, you know, huge investments in coal still going on in the Pacific Northwest. You have, you know, this new plan for Keystone XL and tar sands and oil sands pipelines that are going through the middle of the U.S. And you still have a commitment to fossil fuels predominantly in the South, which has no renewable portfolio standard except for I think Florida has a voluntary one and Virginia has a voluntary one. But I think that's unfortunate because it kind of implies that while it may look like a single market, it's not. And I think that was one of the biggest barriers we identified back in 2006 when we did the study that you're referring to. And I think the tricky thing there is that when you talk about renewable electricity, there's a kind of allure of oversimplifying it to just think about technology. So engineers and planners and scientists sometimes like to think that deploying renewables is as simple as building a better device. So if we could just get solar down to less than a dollar per watt, or if we could just improve the capacity factor of a wind turbine to 50%, or if we could just couple storage with intermittent renewables, or maybe find a way to do large-scale dams that don't impact riverine communities, or a way to do bioenergy without pesticides and fertilizers, or my goodness, what about tidal turbines, right, and ocean power, or OTEC, ocean thermal energy conversion. So we have all of these technological entrepreneurs who make these great technical assessments of resource potential. One of my favorite citations here goes back to the 1980s when the U.S. Department of Energy tried to assess the resource base over the contiguous 48 states. So they basically put a bubble over the 48 states and counted all of the resources within the boundary of those states. And the results were shocking. All of the resources that you probably thought would have been at the top of the list, oil, coal, shale gas, natural gas, and uranium, were slivers of the resource base. More than three quarters of those resources were simply solar, biomass, geothermal, or wind. So this kind of opens the door of we have so much potential. I mean, the United States could easily be the world leader in all of those renewable electricity technologies many times over. We could put China and Germany and Spain and all the others to shame. And yet we're not. Even now, 2017, renewables have made remarkable progress, but they're still only a fraction of supply. I mean, if you take out hydroelectricity, I mean, they're still barely a blip. I think somewhere less than 5% of our electricity supply. So this is depressing because it suggests we have so much promise 
And yet for the past 50 years, we haven't really tapped it. And, and unfortunately, yeah, well, what we found was that it's this weird, seamless web of economic, political, social, and cultural dimensions that fuse together. And for far too long, planners and policymakers have focused on only one dimension. They'll create an economic policy incentive, or they'll focus on consumer education, or they'll focus on improving technology. But rarely do you see a kind of concerted policy effort that spans all of those dimensions that operate in a system. And that was the kind of subtle implication of our study, was that until we start designing public policies that reflect the socio-technical nature of those systems, our adoption will continue to be kind of incremental, ad hoc, and far less than I suppose it could be. And that's kind of depressing because it's hard enough getting things like a carbon tax passed. But even in addition to that, you probably need simultaneous actions across all 50 states, across multiple dimensions over a long period of time. Yeah. And one of my biggest complaints about this is that we've decided apparently that we're going to do all of our energy policy formulation and incentives through the tax code, which just seems insane to me. But anyway. <laughs> and, and I'll add, I'll just add one piece of, of kind of trivia that's a bit depressing. I would actually argue renewable electricity in the United States has taken off in spite of government policy, not largely because of government policy. And this is quite easy to track if you look at actual subsidies and the way that the U.S. Treasury and as well as the U.S. Department of Energy calculates, monetizes, disperses, and manages energy subsidies. Even today, far more go to things like nuclear power and clean fossil fuels, natural gas, carbon capture and storage, etc., than renewables. And when you break renewables into their subcategories of wind and solar, etc., you know, it's even less. So we shouldn't be surprised that we still have a fossil fuel dominated economy when a lion's share of our subsidies and government incentives and tax breaks go to fossil fuels. And this is, of course, something that will only worsen in the current Trump administration. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. The full episode covers much more. In order to hear the rest, point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and become a member. Annual subscriptions start at just $60 a year, and monthly subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month as a way of saying thanks. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our advertising-free show featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The Global Seed Vault, sometimes called the Doomsday Vault, in Svalbard, Norway, has experienced a breach which allowed meltwater to gush into the entrance tunnel. The vault, which is buried in a mountain in the Arctic Circle, was expected to be protected against global warming, but the warming was so great in the Arctic this year that instead of normal snow, the area had heavy rain, and the permafrost in which the vault was built began to melt. Fortunately, the seeds stored in the vault were undamaged, the ice that formed from the water that got in was hacked out, and the management are now waterproofing the tunnel, creating drainages, and taking other preventative measures for future such events. 
But the fact that warming has imperiled the vault, whose purpose was to give humanity a last-ditch protection against losing key food crops due to the ravages of global warming, is a stark irony. Item 2. Iceland is beginning a $30 million geothermal experiment called the Deep Drilling Project, which is expected to go into operation by 2020. They have drilled a well three miles deep between two tectonic plates to reach magma beneath an old volcano in hopes of producing the hottest... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.